Artistic director of Pacific Northwest Ballet, Peter Bull was raised in Bedford, New York. He began studying at the School of American Ballet at the age of nine and became a principal dancer in the New York City Ballet in 1989. Serving the company for 22 years, Mr. Bull was featured in many ballets, including George Balanchine's Apollo and A Midsummer Night's Dream, as well as works by Jerome Robbins, Christopher Wielden, William Forsythe, and many others. Peter Bull, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Yesterday we saw your company, Pacific Northwest Ballet, perform signature works for Etelet de Dance here in Paris. It's special not just because nearly your entire company uh, came to Paris for the performances alongside New York City Ballet, your former company at Miami City Ballet, Joffrey, but it's also part of the Jerome Robbins Centenary, a mm -hmm. choreographer you work closely with. But before we discuss your many collaborations and roles, I was wondering if we could go back to when you first fell in love with dance, uh, who were your teachers as a boy of nine, beginning studies at the School of American Ballet. Did you ever think you would grow up to be a principal in the New York City Ballet, mm -hmm. artistic director of yeah. the Pacific Northwest Ballet? Thank you for doing your research so well, so you really did. <laughs> I admire that. I, my parents were, well actually my grandparents were fans of ballet really started with my grandmother. She saw a performance by Pavlova, and that's when she fell into love with ballet, and passed that love on to my grandfather and then on to my mother. So my mother and father were subscribers to the New York City Ballet before I was born. They got their subscription in 1960, and I was born in 1965. They started to take my sister and I to the New York City Ballet, and we followed sort of the new creations by Balanchine and the new creation by Robbins. We were invested in what the creative process was at the New York City Ballet. So at the age of nine, I asked my mother if I could study ballet, because I'd been watching it on the stage. She cast about to see if there was a ballet school in the town that we lived in. We were about 40 miles from New York City. And every ballet school said, we don't have anything for boys. So my mother called the New York City Ballet and said, what should I do? And they said, we'll bring him to the audition at the School of American Ballet. Um, so I auditioned and started studying ballet. Didn't really love it. I was in a class three boys and 20 girls, and it just, it, uh, so. <laughs> so I asked if I could quit. We went into the ballet school and said, thank you, it's been great. We'll complete the year, but I won't come back. And the ballet school said he can't quit. He must continue for at least one more year, which is a very good decision because after one more year, then I started to like it. I went into a class with just boys, with a teacher who was a former principal with New York City Ballet and also a former étoile with the Paris Opera. Mm -hmm. His name is Jean-Pierre Bonfou, and he was currently a principal dancer with New York City Ballet. And Jean-Pierre really took an interest in my talent and nurturing me. So also I think being in this class with just boys really helped. So after working with Jean-Pierre for two years, I knew I wanted to be a dancer and I hoped to be a principal, and I wanted to be a dancer with New York City Ballet. Um, there wasn't another company that, mm -hmm. I, that I wanted to be. And I don't think I ever had an idea about being an artistic director until much later. I just wanted to dance, and, and I wanted to work with Balanchine, and I wanted to work with Robbins. That was sort of my dream. 
Oh, it's wonderful, and it's really a testament to something I know that you continue. You, you want not to miss those boys who might turn away, or those boys or girls who might turn away. Yeah. yeah. I really like how you, you empower students. Uh, firstly, the, the performances uh, last night were amazing, but I guess if we could discuss those pieces, which were signature, kind of, I think they're very representative yeah. of your company. Yeah. And then also just other choreographers who staged works on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we'll start yeah. there. I, yeah, I think that repertory that we brought to Paris is important because we have invested deeply in that repertory, mostly over the last six, seven years, some of it a little bit further back. But I think three of the nine works that we're bringing to Paris are commissioned works just for PNB. Mm-hmm. So we wear them like a well-tailored suit. They just mm-hmm. uh, seem to suit our dancers and at times our orchestra, our audience feels a sense of ownership about those works, costumes we may have built and designed ourselves, even the scenic elements. So I think that level of investment, we have a a deeper ownership, which makes sense. And I think there's something particular, some people that didn't know our company were talking about this last night. I talked with Elizabeth Platel, who runs the Paris Opera Ballet School, and she said, there's something unique about your dancers. There's a integrity and there's an investment in in their movement and their work that feels different from other companies. And I think choreographers like Alejandro Cerudo or Crystal Pite or Jessica Lang or Twyla Tharp, they've picked up on that mm-hmm. and they've felt sort of artistic license to really run with these strengths that Pacific Northwest Ballet dancers hold. And so I'm very proud of that signature repertoire. I'm pleased that Les Etés de la Danse wanted us to bring that rather than more well-known works that have been around for years. We do those very well, too, but yes. this felt like it You're showed... amazing rights, too, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it felt like it showed our unique identity, and I think that's, that's where we should have been for this festival. What's nice is there's a little bit of reach back into my artistic life. I don't think that should dominate our choices, but it was a nice coincidence that in a ballet like Red Angels, yeah. I was the first cast and working directly with Ulysses Dove on that process. And I wasn't the first cast of Opus 19, The Dreamer, which we did in the Robbins Festival, but I did work with Jerome Robbins for many years on that role. Yeah. So there's some of what I was able to learn, and I feel like I can be part of that chain to take the words of the choreographers and pass them on to today's casts. And speaking of Opus 19, The Dreamer, that was one of... Uh, it must be an emotional time. I'm thinking of your last performance for New York City yeah, Ballet. Yeah, that was it. And why, and, and why you chose those significant pieces. Yeah. yeah. You know, in a company where everybody defined sort of their value and worth by Balanchine and whether they worked with Balanchine and the Balanchine repertory that they worked with, I joined the company, I signed my contracts three days after Balanchine died. And there was this great sadness about what was to happen. A few months after Balanchine died, it was the premiere of Jerome Robbins' Glass Pieces. And it was like a reawakening. People realized that there could still be great art created in the house of Balanchine, even after Balanchine. As much as he lived in ballet and Broadway, but he also was able to get out, Uh see art, and make connections with other artists. And The more I learn about him, the more inspiring I find him to be. And also popularizing the medium, that accessibility. That, oh, yeah. yeah. I think Balanchine knew that. I mean, Balanchine was beating the drum but not getting the followers, and that's uh-huh. part of the reason he brought Robbins in, because uh-huh. Robbins was a commercial star. Yeah. Um, so people came to see Robbins' works and then discovered Balanchine works because yeah. of it. 
So, yeah, so they were lucky to have each other. And Robin's reverence for Balanchine was legendary. He always saw himself as the apprentice, uh-huh. even though he was such a huge success. I find that it's so beautiful when these great artists, it's humbling that lifelong learning right? yeah. and that. And yeah. it makes, I think it makes them great. Yeah. And my tenure was colored much more by Robbins. I worked with Balanchine as a child, but not as an adult company member. But with Robbins, there were six ballets that I was in the original cast of, and two others that he and I worked on the choreography process, and many roles, and many hours in the studio. And so he was really a major influence on my career. Opus 19, The Dreamer, probably the most. We spent the most time in the studio, one-on-one. And he never stopped. He always was pulling more and more. So his words are always in my head, and then I'm able to repeat them for today's casts and tell them what I learned. For those who don't understand the process of a ballet being staged on you, what is that collaboration, or how does it work with different choreographers? Mm. Maybe two examples, Opus 19 and Red Angels. Opus 19, I went in the studio first with a man named Bart Cook. Much of Opus 19, The Dreamer, was choreographed on Bart Cook, Mm -hmm. and then it was premiered by Mikhail Bereshnikov. But Robbins did that a lot. He liked to work with a dancer that was familiar to him to develop material Mm -hmm. and do all the fussing, Mm -hmm. and then take the more finished product in for the final cast, which could be frustrating for that first dancer. But Bart knew everything about that ballet, and so he taught it to me originally, and then took me into the studio to work with Jerome Robbins. I I think Bart fleshed out the role much more than Jerome Robbins would. I think Jerome Robbins' strength was not so much in the words that he would communicate. Honestly, even though that he was in his 70s at the time, he was an amazing demonstrator. The legs weren't necessarily doing ballet, but the focus in the eyes was so clear that you understood what his intention was by standing beside him, by moving with him, by watching him as close as we could, by zeroing in on the height of the arms or the movement of the shoulder. Mm-hmm. These little things that he could still portray, yeah. it's tribal. It's standing next to somebody by the campfire and hearing the story and learning to recite the story just as they did. And, and this, was, this was something very beautiful. It's nothing that you could read in a book, nothing that you could learn from a video. It's mm-hmm. something that you arrive at through proximity. And Ulysses Dove was... I think he also was an amazing dancer and his movement was so fresh and full of energy and information for a dancer working by his side. He was a much younger man when he created Red Angels than Robbins was when I worked with him. And a more temperamental, could be very excited, could be very frustrated, very in need of knowing that the people in the room respected him and then he respected them and then this collaboration went up. If he sensed any sort of disrespect, you couldn't get it back. He just would want that separation. There's a funny thing about Red Angels, he created a step He took each of us in the studio for an hour to make the four solos of the last movement. There's a step that was my step where uh, the dancer goes to an arabesque with his arms front and then his arms very slowly move around past the arabesque and then they come back. And uh, he made that step for Darcy Kistler who did the fourth solo. And I came into the next rehearsal and I I just felt the tension in the room. They were just not happy with each other. <laughs> she said, well, thank you. And he said, well, thank you. And she left, and that was that. And then he came right up to me, and he said, can you do this step? And he had been giving Darcy the step. 
which she wasn't able to execute, partly because she was in a point shoe. But I, I did it with ease, and I loved the step. And so Darcy's step went to me, and that was that. We went. <laughs> it's, it's so fascinating, the revision process, and, and also how you contrast different choreographers and their styles of communicating, you know, being patient or sometimes being temperamental or whatever. Yeah. And then I think, as I've heard, uh, Chris, Crystal Pite and uh, Twilight, you know, what are their styles like and why, why chosen to bring their works to Pacific Northwest Ballet? There are choreographers who feed off of the tension in the room and actually seek it out. I think mm -hmm. they feel that once they get to that point of intense emotion, they're getting closer to their creative process. Right. And I think Jerome Robbins did that. I think Ulysses Dove did it almost by accident. I think he couldn't help it, it wasn't deliberate. But Robbins did want to push people to the limit mm -hmm. and see if they were frustrated and angry, what more could he get from them? If he brought them to an emotional um, level, what, what more could they bring to the ballet? Twyla definitely did that. She would mm -hmm. push people to a point. Even Ulysses and Twyla would ask people to do it again and again and again, and there was mm -hmm. a point of exhaustion mm -hmm. where dancers would need to go to the essence of the work because yeah. they couldn't put 100% in And then you'd get really refined musicality and very clever physical choices. Everyone's different. Crystal, always calm, always nurturing, and somehow everybody is riveted by her in the room. She commands attention without ever raising her voice louder than what I'm doing now. I think her dedication to the craft is so evident that everybody wants to get behind her and join her at her very high level of creativity. In a weird way, dancers want to serve her vision and help her to realize it. I've never seen dancers be more devoted to a choreographer in the studio. And when the rehearsal's done, they don't want to leave. They want to hear more. <laughs> and they yeah. want to keep working with her. And Jessica Lange had done her mental preparation outside of the studio and brought it into the studio and was willing to make adjustments, but it's just a different process. Rather than finding it on the body in the room, she would have worked with the dancer beforehand or come up with a more detailed concept beforehand that she would then ask you to execute in the studio. But also very calm and encouraging. I think a younger generation of choreographers is much more empowering to dancers and less demanding or even oppressive towards dancers. This is Hannah Steinkamp with The Creative Process. I am an associate podcast producer focusing on topics relating to dance, psychology, and art therapy. I'm currently a student at Virginia Tech majoring in psychology and minoring in adaptive brain and behavior. I want to start off by saying I am so thrilled to be a part of Peter Bull's podcast. Before deciding to attend college, I was actually training to be a professional dancer for a little over 10 years. I started training with the School of Rich and Ballet around fourth grade, spending summers dancing with Miami City Ballet, American Ballet Theater, and Boston Ballet. Near the end of my ballet career, I was a Richmond Ballet trainee and I was being considered for an apprenticeship with the National Ballet of Canada. It's been around two years since I've danced professionally, and I would have never imagined I'd be producing a podcast with the director of my favorite company. Listening to Peter Bull's interview with Mia as an ex-ballet dancer made me realize more about the beauty behind ballet, and less about the technicalities and challenges I faced when I was in the industry. Now I am able to better understand the artistry of emotion that Bull emphasizes, 
and how pushing dancers to be less vulnerable in their dancing can lead to more raw expression in the studio. This is precisely what I hope to do as an art therapist, where I can help people express, identify, and cope with their emotions through creating art. I love how Peter Bull draws attention to the importance of proximity and learning. He describes ballet as nothing you can read in a book, nothing that you can learn from a video, but it's something that you arrive at through proximity. I spent years and years perfecting my technique through the school, but when it comes to learning expression and performance and how to truly connect with the choreography you're given, that's all acquired through proximity. Much like the pre-professional division at PNB, the trainee program at Richmond Ballet exposed aspiring dancers to the reality of being in a professional company. So there I was, freshly graduated from the ballet school, standing behind my idols who I grew up admiring on stage. My first and by far favorite production as a Richmond Ballet trainee was Balanchine's Who Cares, staged by Jerry Coomery, the ballet master of Richmond Ballet. Jerry Coomery, similar to Peter Bull, danced with the New York City Ballet under the instruction of George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins. Balanchine's choreography in Who Cares is temperamental, coordinating perfectly with the jazz score composed by George Gershwin. Although beautiful to watch, learning the choreography as a classically trained dancer was a nightmare. The steps are daunting, many don't even have real names, and can only be described as a crash or a pow, or some other form of onomatopoeia. I was a strong dancer when it came to adagio, which consisted of slow and controlled movements. Meanwhile, Balanchine's no-name steps flashed before my eyes. It's like I blinked and I missed a whole sequence of them. I would have given up, but the company dancers looked like they were having the time of their lives. I was determined to adapt to this unfamiliar style, just so I could feel the way they were dancing. Once I became comfortable with the footwork, the choreography became much more enjoyable, and expressing how the music sounded felt natural. The first piece in Who Cares, Strike Up the Band, rounds up the audience before any dancing begins. Then the curtain lifts, revealing the ensemble of dancers positioned on stage, sometimes so captivating the audience gasps in response. I remember Jerry Coomery describing this feeling of potential energy that filled the entire theater. The seconds counted down in my head before falling into this explosive kick, releasing all of the adrenaline, excitement, and fear I felt behind the curtain. The way Balanchine choreographed this moment is genius. It was incredibly euphoric, leaving me with chills before every performance. This experience made me appreciate how great of an artist George Balanchine was, along with the individuals like Peter Bull, who serve as the backbone of his legend today. After hearing Peter Bull's perspective and reflecting on his interview, I feel thankful for this connection I formed with ballet. It wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't been exposed to the ballet world at such a young age. Just like Peter Bull and probably any other dancer, I want everyone to know how much fun I had dancing on stage, a feeling that shouldn't be limited to a certain group of people. I thank Peter Bull for addressing the elitist stereotype ballet typically has, and for expressing his plans as a director to make ballet an art form that anyone is welcome to try. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Peter Bull, Artistic Director of Pacific Northwest Ballet. What was your vision as you came in? And I just love what you're doing in terms of empowering young dancers into uh, you, taking on the challenging role of doing choreographies at such young ages. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's wonderful to speak to them. Yeah, I think there's a clarity in that I don't choreograph. I just think it makes me more objective when I'm looking at choreography and I don't feel like I have a stake in it, like I would like my work to go on that program and I want it to look better than Justin Peck's work, that yeah. we don't have to deal with that, luckily. I just right. have to look at choreography 
objectively, I suppose like a, a buyer for a major store. I just want oh, things things that, that. that are yeah. right for us and that will yeah. um, suit our dancers or suit our customers and will create revenue or just create inspiration. And I also think I came into some amazing building blocks for an institution. I really came into a very strong foundation. I came into a very positive working organization. There were all these things in place like nurturing new works, but they were places to build from. Obviously, bringing in new works is something that excited me and I thought we can do so much more. Whereas Kent and Francia had built a wonderful collection of Kent's choreography, Balanchine's work, some in-house choreographers and some from elsewhere. There were holes in the collection. There weren't Robin's ballets. There weren't ballets by Twyla Tharp. And there was an opportunity for more ballets by female choreographers. Choreographers that I knew that Kent and Francia didn't know. So I think that would be our primary investment over the last 13 years under my tenure is to build those new works. And I think I wanted every dancer to feel empowered, and I would say that's true for many other people in the organization, because we had tremendous strengths, and they didn't need to be relegated to just the responsibilities they were currently doing, but there were people that were able to do much more than what they were doing. A teacher that could be an incredible coach as well, a dancer who could be a great choreographer as well, a lecturer who could put on a different dissertation about stagings. We had great strengths throughout the institution, and all of these valuable people needed opportunities to show what those strengths were. It's really an art form, and I really admire what you've done for in terms of teaching and bringing young people up. I, I love teaching, and I love, as you say, when you see a young dancer or a young choreographer take on a challenge that they didn't realize that they could accomplish. Yeah. There's a, it's a great joy. I was wondering if you could just speak a bit more about teaching and what it gives to you. Yeah, teaching, I, I used to teach a lot. I used to teach 13 classes mm -hmm. a week at the School of American Ballet, um, mm -hmm. which was a lot especially <laughs> juggling being a principal dancer with New York City Ballet at the same time. But now I teach either four or five classes a week, and that's two or three for the company and always two for the school. Mm. I think the heart of teaching is really the work that you do with students. Company members are different. They have different needs, and some need to skip class or change a combination. Mm -hmm. They're a pretty dedicated company, but with students, there's mental blocks that they have, and there's moments of fear and frustration, and it's trying to in a sense, hold their hand and walk them through and let them know that they are capable of more. I always say to the students, you know, two arms, two legs, same as this student. There isn't a reason that you can't execute what they're able to execute. So let's take it from the first building block and just empower you to find out what the tools are that you need to be able to execute the three pirouettes that you haven't been able to do. And it's, it's an amazing moment when you see students arrive at these new plateaus and they find themselves as artists and as dancers. I, I, I love to teach students at least twice a week because then each concept is refreshed mm -hmm. twice every week. And I used to teach a lot of these people who are dancers with the company when they were at School of American Ballet, I taught them five um. times a week. So I would just see some of our principal dancers every single day in the studio. They couldn't escape me, yeah. and I could guide them up this ladder of success five days a week. Oh, that's, it's really beautiful, with the, both with the next step, and then you have these community initiatives as well, yeah. which is Dances for Everyone, and did, yeah. you, you just describe your, your mission with that and what you do. 
Yeah, dance is for everyone, and that's the mission. We see people that might not be able to encounter dance in so many ways because it's not something that their school offers. It's not something, I had a family that subscribed to the New York City Ballet. Most families don't do that. Yeah. Um, so for us to be able to offer that level of exposure. And I think traditionally, ballet has felt like it, it can be an elitist art form. Mm -hmm. Only certain people are invited. You have to have a certain type of foot. You have to have a long neck. You may, you may have yeah. to have finances to be able to study ballet. Mm -hmm. We would like to eliminate that and make mm -hmm. sure that it's available for everybody to sort of dip their toe in mm -hmm. and get a sense of it and have a, a, an experience with dance. I think we don't do it lightly. For many of these students in the community, we will continue to go back to their school up to 12 times. We'll mm -hmm. ask them to create the dance for them and their peers. We'll see it all the way through to where they go onto a stage and they perform that work that they've mm -hmm. created over a 12-week period yeah. to show their aunts and uncles and friends and everybody else that they have. And then it's a real taste of what the art form is, um, mm -hmm. how much dance can empower and liberate. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I love is they'll take their academic curriculum and translate it into dance. So if they're studying about, the one I like to talk about is the biography of Sonia Sotomayor. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and they translate that into dance. And how would you translate that? Because there are places where she met blockades in life, and mm -hmm. there are people that extended a hand, and she was able to pass through. So uh -huh. they put into movement her life story um, and how she was able to find who she was, and kids can express that through dance. Oh, that's really beautiful and it's really I think even to engage their imagination and also help with their I think long-term memory I think it can be useful I almost I can th think of many academic disciplines and subjects that would benefit from that which yeah. people the students might find boring I'm really yeah. talking about you know math or physics or whatever yeah. and I think this excites them and they get that muscle memory yeah. and I think it really helps with the long-term memory yeah. too. Yeah, no, I agree. It's such a different way to learn mm -hmm. um, and it's so outside of the yeah. box for yeah. book learning and reciting and memorization. Yeah. Um, and many people just need to be physical in order mm -hmm. to remember, says me, using my arms. <laughs> No, but it makes it fun, and that's the thing. Yeah. I feel people learn so much when their mind is open and when you engage. I think it's nice also you're empowering them right from the start to because obviously they, they, they can't dance like your dancers yeah. when they start off, but when they feel that their imaginations are engaged, it says, well, that down the road if I practice. Yeah. And that's another thing that I like to discuss, and I really feel that dancers, dance companies do it so well, and we are forgotten in other art disciplines that could benefit from it. My own background is painting and mm, writing. Mm. And there are great art schools and there are great writing schools, but they don't, this, this period of apprenticeship right. where you work hard, you know, it's disciplined, you, no one's born a genius, you have to yeah. put in the time. And it's not, you know, it's kind of diminishing from other art forms, this feeling of yeah. the long road. Yeah. and, and I, it sounds a bit old-fashioned, but the role model is so essential to see yeah. how somebody else does it. And to, I mean, that's how we raise children. is It's not so much the lesson that you dictate, mm -hmm. but the actions that they witness in different yeah. circumstances. And, and children remember that and hopefully agree with it, or if they disagree with it, they also find their course. But um, 
No, I think that's the crux of it. And it's the proximity we want to introduce people to dance. I think the best apprenticeship part of our institution is our professional division program where we have about 50 students that are ages 18 and 19. And they are students, but they're also working alongside the company and they are essentially apprenticing with our company and then they go off to many other companies. And I also hire from that group. Mm -hmm. I'd say two-thirds of the company has served as professional division students and that's a two-year program and they will understudy or they'll get on stage but they just they have that ability to stand in the proximity and learn from really being close. Wow. And then as you look to the future of dance, so many of the members of your company that I spoke to really, I mean, it's very forward looking, you yeah. know, it's not the collaborations that you're performing here in, in Paris with, you know, musicians and other art forms. How do you see the future of dance for your company and just general? I think one thing that's happening with the future of dance is I think the proscenium stage will always exist and it really is a quintessential way to see dance at this point in dance's evolution. But I love the explorations that are happening outside of a proscenium stage. We just did a festival where one of our dancers created a work for 60 students in a rolling fountain outside and, uh-huh. and people were able to walk around it. There wasn't an established vantage point that there would be in a theater. Mm-hmm. They could get behind it, they could get above it, they could get close to it, they could get far from it, mm-hmm. they could feel the water splashed onto them or they yeah. could have distance. But I love that. It's sort of like taking a two-dimensional art form and turning it into a three-dimensional art form. Mm -hmm. And even places like in Little Mortal Jump where your proscenium stage, the wings are suddenly pulled back and you can't quite tell where the walls are. And Uh there's always been a box for dance. And Uh I think now choreographers are experimenting with that box Uh and creating different shapes with it. And I think it's liberating for choreographers to to make site-specific work and work that's impromptu and that happens in front of an audience that didn't realize that they were going to be an audience. They were just walking down the street and there was dance beside them. And yeah. how does that make people feel? I saw a wonderful film of Benjamin Millepied dancing with great alacrity through Grand Central Terminal at rush uh-huh. hour. And, you know, commuters were just <laughs> so knocked off balance and sort of delighted uh-huh. by this everyday mundane commute that they had. Mm. They almost and, don't see anymore, yeah, but yeah. A brilliant dancer flew by them and they followed it and it's just, it's almost uh, like an angel landing on your shoulder. You just don't, yeah. you don't see it coming. Oh, no, that's so beautiful. And you've collaborated with the Saudi Art Museum. Was that the project? Yes, yes, yeah, great performance in an outdoor sculpture park, right, yeah. looking at the water and sunset and yeah. great works created there. Yeah, and I love the you know contemporary musicians you've also worked with there. Yeah, that's not my initiative, but yes. these young choreographers are gravitating towards really exciting new voices and composition. It seems like more emotion comes through with mm-hmm. what I've seen. So I guess uh, I would, this is a, you know, an education initiative, we've spoken a lot about that, but as you know, we're going through a period with the digital age and the way technology is changing the way we communicate with ourselves and with our imaginations. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could speak about the importance of live performance and arts in the mm-hmm. digital age. I have mixed feelings about this. I think it's going to be a wave that we will ride. I don't think you can really do anything else. I do feel very attached to what happens. I, I think it happened last night where the lights go down and brilliant art happens and nobody is experiencing it through 
technology and it's shared and I think there's something uplifting about that. I think sometimes that experience of knowing that you had a personal moment that was uplifting or inspiring and so many other people around you had it and you feel that when everybody's privately experiencing it and then they erupt into applause and they want to communicate as loudly as they can with the people on stage that gave that, them that experience. But it's kind of like a whole group coming together to worship and the worship becomes more powerful. Everybody that was able to experience an art exhibit and wants to talk with other people that experience that art exhibit. People who travel to a foreign land and they want to find other people that travel to that foreign land. And technology can be much more creating of a silo and more isolating. Um, and I worry about that with dance, the day mm -hmm. that we can film dance very successfully and people can watch emergence in their living room. I think something's lost. I think something is gained by experiencing it as a community. And that's something I just worry in general about our society, moving away from those shared community moments that are so empowering and uplifting. So we will welcome technology. Certainly projections are coming into ballet. I saw Christopher Wielden do a brilliant ballet about cell phones mm -hmm. and really how isolating they can be. So technology will surround. It makes our theater operate more efficiently. There are ways that we can have images of sets transported from Paris to Seattle in you know, oh, just a second. Yeah. But I do really value that part that is shared and less technology-based. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's, what you're doing at the Pacific Northwest Ballet is so inspiring. And thank you for everything you. you're doing for education and for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Hannah Steinkamp. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.